This morning, I want to talk about wise men, right? The Magi. And I think this is such an interesting passage, and it's an amazing moment when you look at these men uh, who traveled from uh, far in order to come and worship the king, worship the king. It's an incredible thing when you think about the heavenly father and how he must have viewed the birth of his son. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. It hit me years ago. How did the heavenly father, what was he thinking when baby Jesus was born, knowing that that was his beloved son and knowing that his beloved son was born uh, to go to the cross? And what an incredible moment that must have been for the heavenly father. And one day maybe we'll get a glimpse of that. Wise men. Let me give you three things out of this passage. And this passage is an amazing one. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. First of all, wise men follow the word of God. Follow the word of God. Secondly, they rejoice in the things of God. And lastly, but not least, they worship the one true king. They worship the one true king. Wise men follow the word of God, rejoice in the things of God, and they worship the one true God. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and following, starting with the idea of following the word of God, it's always been an interesting question to me. How did the Magi understand the significance of the birth of Christ? When you begin to think through that, was it just the star that caught their attention? These magi, the idea is they were magicians, but they were more like astrologers. They were from Babylon or parts thereof. And the question is, how is it that after the birth of Christ, because this is probably about close to a year and a half after his birth, that they show up on the scene in Jerusalem, at what moment did they begin to realize that something significant had taken place in Israel? Why is it that they would have a caravan of people to come. It wasn't just probably three wise men. We get that from the gifts. Probably there was a whole caravan, and we know that because all of Jerusalem was kind of in an uproar about the fact that these guys had come in, and they were talking to Herod. I believe that it's because they understood some prophecy out of Daniel. Daniel had left a legacy in Babylon, he had given them scripture and he had given them specific time markers with regard to the coming of the ruler or the king, the Messiah. And as a result of their understanding of the word of God, they began to look for some sign, some significant moment to indicate that these things had taken place. And when they saw the star, I believe they recognized that that was the sign they needed that scripture was now being fulfilled. They follow the word of God. Matthew chapter 2, it says, After Jesus, in verse 1, was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Matthew doesn't go into all the details of the birth of Christ at the very beginning like Luke does. He doesn't go into all the shepherds and all the different factors that took place. He jumps literally right to the coming of the Magi and their visitation to Jerusalem. And as I said, the Magi's visit was probably 
within about a two-year period after the Lord was born. And we know this for several reasons. First of all, because Herod ended up killing all the male children of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, or the, the male children, two years old and younger, uh, out of Bethlehem. Secondly, that when the Magi worshiped the Lord, in verses 9 and 11, Matthew uses a word for child, meaning an older child, not an infant or a newborn. Luke uses the word newborn in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, speaking of the fact that Jesus had just been born. Here in Matthew, we have the idea of a child, one who's probably a toddler rather than a newborn. And lastly, interestingly enough, in verse 11, when the Magi come to visit the Lord, they enter a house versus where Jesus was born uh, in, in a sense, the stable. And so there's several different factors here. This is probably about a, a year and a half into or after the Lord's birth that the Magi come onto the scene. And the question begins to form, how did the Magi know of the birth of Christ? Now, let's take a little bit of a history lesson, okay? And some of this is prophetic, but if you look back at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, you get these time factors that are put into place hundreds of years before the birth of Christ as an event took place. And in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is given this prophecy, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So Daniel's given a very clear picture of certain time factors that immediately, when the decree to rebuild the wall takes place, actually begin to happen. And it's put into several different ways. The idea overall is that 70 weeks, which is 70 periods of seven years, which is 490 years, were decreed for Israel. Now we looked at this in Revelation and it's pretty clear that this is for Israel. It's 490 weeks. We would recognize, I believe, that 69 weeks have taken place and that the last week has not yet taken place. And I believe that that is the week of the tribulation or the great tribulation. But 70 weeks are very clearly decreed for Israel. 69 of those weeks are split up into two categories. They are continuous. In other words, there's not a gap between the two categories. They are simply markers of time, and we're not sure exactly what they mean. There's all kinds of speculation with regard to that. Two sections. One is of seven weeks, and one is of 62 weeks, and together that obviously equals 69 weeks, which is 483 years. And this was to begin, the clock began ticking as soon as the issuing of the decree to rebuild the wall took place until the time of Messiah, the prince. So 483 years, as soon as that uh, command, as soon as the demand or the decree to rebuild the wall 
there is a clicking of time of 483 years. Well, the decree to rebuild the wall uh, was done by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah. And the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it this way. The fourth decree was also by Artaxerxes Longamanus, issued on March 5th, 444 BC. And you see that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And on that occasion, Artaxerxes granted the Jews permission to rebuild Jerusalem's city walls. This decree is the one referred to in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. So the fulfillment of Christ's return to Jerusalem, we're not talking about his birth at this moment, but rather until the time of Messiah the Prince, that is the time that he had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, or what we call Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 speaks to that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The 483 years began with the decree to rebuild the wall, and it ended when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey. 483 years. Well, clearly, if the wise men are looking at these prophecies, that there is a moment in time prior to the Lord, fully grown, entering into Jerusalem, that he had to be born. And as they are looking at scripture and they're looking at historical events, they had the prophecies of Daniel. They clearly were looking at what it is that God had decreed that was going to take place for the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Messiah. Again, the Bible Knowledge Commentary states this, the time prophesied extends up to the introduction of the Messiah to the nation Israel. This second period concluded on the day of the triumphal entry just before Christ was cut off, that is, crucified. Because the prophecy is 483 years that he'll enter into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and then Messiah will be cut off, speaking of his crucifixion. And then we still have one week to go. In the middle of that last moment and the beginning of the first week is what we would call the church age. And as a result, there's been time interjected into this. But the wise men looking at these prophecies would have noted the time factors given by Daniel, given to Daniel prophetically with regard to the coming of the Messiah. I love this statement. In his triumphal entry, Christ in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9, officially presented himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. Thus, the first two segments of the important time period, the seven years, which is the four, excuse me, the seven uh, periods of seven, the 49 years, and the 62 sevens, which is 434 years, ran consecutively with no time between them. They totaled 483 years and extended from March 5th, 444 BC, to March 30, AD 33. What an amazing moment. As History is unfolding. What's being passed down over and over to the next generations is the prophecies that have been given Daniel concerning the coming of the Messiah. I believe these wise men, these magi, were studying this. They recognized this. They were astrologers. 
And they also began to study the sky. They knew the signs in the heavens. And when the star came along, they connected the dots. And they began to realize that something significant had happened in fulfillment of the prophecy that had been given through Daniel. I love what verse 2 says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is the Magi speaking to Herod as they come into Jerusalem. And then Matthew records this, For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Folks, uh, not to get too wonky, okay, but in every, uh, every English word that we've got, there's at least two Greek words. And when you see the word see or saw here, you got to ask yourself, what word is being used? Matthew uses this word, which is translated for, in English to see, 35 times in his gospel. You can read through, and we're going to see this over and over and over again, that this word to see is used. Three times out of the 35, the word that is used is specifically referring to physical sight, i.e. somebody was blind and God healed them, the Lord healed them, and now they could see, and the people marveled at the fact that they had been blind, the individual had been blind, and now they could see, speaking of physical sight. But the rest of the times, 32 times, Matthew uses the word which has the idea of not simply seeing something with their eyes, but rather perceiving and understanding what they're seeing. And what the Magi are saying is that we saw the star. We perceived that it was unique. There's something about this. It's unusual. They compared it with Scripture, and they recognized that God was giving a sign with regard to the birth of the ruler that had been prophesied 400 and whatever, 70 years prior to this. And they began to act on what it is that the Word of God had stated and what God was revealing in a special and unique way through the star, the Magi recognized that something significant was taking place. Well, when you look at the belief of the Magi and their willingness to follow the word of God, you can't help but read through this passage and begin to understand that Matthew is comparing and contrasting the belief of the Magi and their willingness to follow the word of God versus Herod the scribes, the priests, and even the people in Jerusalem who should have known all about this. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod's contrast The scribes' contrast, the people's contrast to not even knowing the time, understanding what is taking place literally five miles from where they are is indescribable. Here the Magi travel who knows how far in order to come to this place 
in order to see this child. Based on scripture that these people had right in front of them all along. (laughs) And yet they didn't know. They were caught off guard. In fact, Matthew records that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That word troubled means fearful, agitated, stirred up. Why? Because of the word of God and because of the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what does Herod do? Well, he goes to the chief priests and scribes. He finds out where is the Messiah supposed to be born. And it's interesting because when the Magi said the king, the ruler, the inference here, the echo moment, is that they understood that the Messiah was being born. That the Savior of the world was being born. Herod's description is where's the Messiah? He doesn't just say where's the king supposed to be born. He says where's the Messiah? And so evidently the Magi understood the significance that he wasn't just the ruler. Jesus isn't just the ruler of the world. But he's the one who's come to give his life so that sin can be forgiven and that eternal life can be given. What an amazing truth. Micah 5.2 is where this prophecy is found. And he says this, As for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Here it is. The Magi from a pagan nation come to worship the Jewish Messiah, the King, the Promised One, and the Messiah's own people are caught off guard or troubled. Wiersbe says this, Herod was not a full-blooded Jew. He was actually an Edomian, a descendant of Esau. He was an Edomite. And this is a picture of the old struggle between Esau and Jacob that began even before the boys were born. It's the spiritual versus the carnal, the godly versus the worldly. The Magi were seeking the king, Herod was opposing the king, and the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. These priests knew the scriptures and pointed others to the Savior, but they would not go to worship him themselves. Wow. What an amazing contrast. What a great picture for us to make sure that we, like the wise men, follow the word of God, searching the word carefully to make sure that ultimately we are following the Lord himself, himself. Folks, when we talk about church, we talk about being the people of God. We ought to be studying the word of God. We ought to be in the word of God. We ought to have our minds renewed by the word of God. We ought to be asking the Lord to teach us how to walk by faith, which means to be persuaded that God alone is able, that he's adequate, that our adequacy is not out of ourselves. Our adequacy is from Christ himself. And we ought to be absolutely intent and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Everything revolves and centers on Christ himself because he's the Lord and he's the shepherd of this body as well as the church, big C. Amen? That's what this is all about. We ought not be caught off guard. We ought to be in the word of God and we ought to be absolutely willing to follow what God's word has to say. Wise men follow the word of God. But secondly, they also rejoice in the things of God. When we see God at work, and we recognize what God is doing, there ought to be a rejoicing in it. There ought to be joy in the midst of it. 
In verse 7, we see something again of the comparison between the Magi and Herod. We see Herod's deceit. It says, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them to the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Wow. What a bunch of baloney that is. Amen. I mean, what a snake this guy is. Herod says that he wants to know where is this Messiah so that he could worship them. He meets secretly with the Magi and wants to know, when did this star appear? You've got a whole group of people that have traveled quite a distance and they come into Jerusalem. And the echo effect here is that there's all kinds of scriptural references. There's not only the Micah, there's the Daniel. There's all the different references and prophecies that were available to the scribes to ascertain the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, was coming. And yet they were caught off guard. The Magi had traveled all this way in order to worship the king because they obviously were acting on their belief. They were acting because they were willing to follow God and be persuaded that what God had to say was true. I like to think that Daniel had his mark made. Can you imagine what a godly man Daniel was? One day, I can't wait to meet Daniel. We talked about having mentors. We talked about it from the New Testament perspective. I want to tell you something. I want to sit down for a while with Daniel, don't you? I want to sit down for a little while with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who understood what true faith was. That we're not going to bow down to that idol. Our God can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we refuse to bow down to that idol. Praise God for that picture. Folks, when we talk about this whole situation, we talk about how the Magi began to learn and to grow. I really believe you trace it back to Daniel and his godliness in the midst of a pagan culture where even the kings of Babylon understood that Daniel was unique, that he was special, that God was with him. And that impact, that mentoring, undoubtedly, reached down to the Magi as they studied scripture and had received an amazing prophecy. But contrast that to Herod, to where Herod is secretly calling them and he wants to ascertain the time the star appeared. He's caught off guard. He's got to go to the scribes. They got to scramble in order to try to figure out, well, what does the word of God have to say about this? They didn't even know. We have echoes of Josiah where he's cleaning out the temple and the word of God is there and they don't even know it and they got to pull it out. And when they read it to Josiah, he rents his clothes because he knows that way, the way the people of God are acting is not in alignment with what the word of God has said. We ought not be caught, caught off guard. We have the word of God and we're able to look at what the word of God has to say and we ought to be rejoicing in the things of God because we're able through the Holy Spirit's power and wisdom through the word of God to ascertain what actually is from God and what's not. Herod and the people were caught totally off guard. It says something about their hearts. Herod was a very deceitful liar. I don't know if you've ever read about Herod the Great. Can I just make a recommendation? Don't bother. Don't bother. 
Can I say that? I mean, if you want to know about them, amen to that. But it is a soap opera of mega proportions. The guy's a wicked guy. Wicked guy. He was called Herod the Great. His political aspirations, not only Roman, but also Jewish, are in one sense infamous. His killing of even his own family members to keep power. I mean, he got married nine different times to nine, diff nine different wives, obviously, and the kids that he had, all in order to solidify his own power because he was so narcissistic, and so bent on power. He was an amazing builder, including the temple. I don't know if you've been to Masada, but that's one of his fortresses or Caesarea where you can see what Herod built and the palace and the, the ruins that are there today, indescribable. All kinds of different buildings throughout the region are attributed to Herod. Well, the man died when Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were in Egypt, but clearly he leaves a horrible legacy of death, narcissism, and familial discord. I mean, just indescribable. He wants to know where is this child so that he can worship him. No, no. <laughs> Verse 9 says, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They listened to the king, they went on their way, and again, we're talking only five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The star which they had seen in the east goes on before them, and we don't quite understand that. You may have seen the documentary about the star and the way that the, the stars aligned. By the way, there's a difference between uh, astrology and astronomy, right? There are some people that want to dictate and predict their future by the way the stars line up. The Bible clearly forbids that. But to study God's creation is perfectly fine. In the midst of it, this star, and we're not sure exactly how this worked. It could be, as some suggest, the Shekinah glory of God himself as he begins to lead these magi to the very specific, precise spot where Jesus is now living in this home. And it stops in some way over the place where the child was. And again, the words see here, when they saw the star, when they recognized and understood the impact of the meaning behind the star, what does it say they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced. They rejoiced. I always love the idea and the truth that joy is linked with grace because grace produces joy. The background of the story is that these magi had traveled all this way, not to just see and pay tribute to a king, so to speak, but to pay tribute to the king, the divine one the one born of a virgin, the one that came as the Messiah in order to go to the cross so that they, in believing in him, could have forgiveness of sin. Not only do they have Daniel's prophecies, they had all the prophecies of the Old Testament to be able to view. They had Jeremiah's prophecies. They had Isaiah's prophecies. They had Ezra's prophecies. On and on and on. This Messiah was no uh, ordinary individual. No normal king. He was the king. And they came to worship. And when they see the star, 
stop over the place where Jesus is, they rejoiced. And I believe part of their rejoicing is because they knew the grace of God in even having this child born. That God himself had come to visit in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing truth. Well, not only do they follow the word of God and rejoice in the things of God, but they worship the one true king. Verse 11, after coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What a beautiful picture. We're not told that Joseph was not there, but rather Matthew simply emphasizes the lineage of Jesus through Mary. He's the Messiah, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, as was prophesied. He's the unique Son of God. I think that worshiping is very important because it has the idea that they are worshiping the king, but they're also doing so because of who he is, the Messiah. And I believe that their gifts indicate their understanding clearly of this. They give them three gifts. All of these gifts are clearly to honor the Lord as king, but perhaps there's some specificity to the gifts themselves. The gold emphasizing that he is the king, the frankincense to honor him as a priest. Frankincense was used during times of sacrifice. He's the perfect spotless lamb of God come to be sacrificed so that we might have life when we believe in him. And myrrh for his sacrificial death. You think about these gifts, they were clearly thought out, They were clearly given with an understanding of who the Lord really is. Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, Gold might represent his deity or purity, incense the fragrance of his life, and myrrh his sacrifice and death. What an amazing statement. In verse 12, God continues to give them direction. He's been leading them all along. He gives them the word of God. He gives the sign of the star. And now he begins to warn them. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. They're warned by God. They have a dream. And God in their dream warns them, go home a different way. Avoid Herod. And we soon find out why. How are we seeking the Lord? How are we seeking the Lord? Are we carefully examining the word of God and walking in God's grace to do in God's power what he commands us? Are we rejoicing in the things of God and are we worshiping the one true king? What do we worship? I'm reminded always when we talk about worship and the question of whether we're worshiping the one true king of what John says In his first epistle, as he closes, little children, guard yourselves from idols, lest we think that somehow we wouldn't struggle with idolatry. How are we walking in wisdom? How are we seeking the Lord? How are we in the word of God? How are we rejoicing in the things of God? How are we worshiping the one true God? Clearly, the Magi were wise men, wise men because they worshiped the king, the Messiah, the one who alone was able to pay for their sin. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me for a moment? Are you worshiping the Lord this morning? 
Are you rejoicing in the things of God? Are you in the word of God in order to make sure that your mind is being renewed and that you're receiving the wisdom from the Lord? What's God doing in your life? How are you walking with him moment by moment, day by day? Is it the fruit of the Spirit being revealed through you, which is love and all its characteristics? Or are we walking by the flesh where we're trying to figure it out on our own, trying to do the things of God without God's power, without his timing, without who he is in and through us as he leads us, all the while transforming us? What's God doing in, in your life? Are we walking in wisdom? What's the contrast? As we see this contrast between the Magi and Herod, what's the contrast in our lives? Are we like the wise men? Or are we being caught off guard? We're not in the word of God. We're not learning to walk by the spirit. What's the fruit that's coming out of our lives? Take a moment, think about that. Would you stand with me? What's God saying to you this morning? How's he leading you to respond to him first and foremost? What an amazing moment, Jesus being born and then living and on this earth. Magi coming to worship him. I love that statement. Wise men still seek him. Amen to that. How are we seeking after the Lord? How are we finding in him all that we need? You may be here this morning, you don't have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you in something. Jesus Christ was born to go to the cross in order to give his life to pay for each and every one of our sin. And the Bible's very clear that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Have you experienced that this morning? Can you honestly say that you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? That you know him, that you have received him, believed in him, you trust him, to do what he has said that he would do. Take a moment, you respond as the Lord would lead you. If you need to stay right where you are, that's fine. It's, it's from your heart, it's from your heart. What's God doing in your life? How's the Lord leading and guiding and directing you? Are we seeking the Lord wholeheartedly? Are we satisfied in him and him alone? Father, I love you. I thank you for this reminder. Even for me, I'm so grateful for it. We keep our eyes fixed on you. You're the author and finisher of faith. Lord, I thank you for the life that you offer. I thank you for the life that we have the privilege of experiencing 
day by day, moment by moment. Lord, I, I thank you so much for each one that's here. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts in this church body. I thank you that we are unified in you. I pray that we'd be careful to preserve that unity. Lord, I thank you so much for Hoffmantown Church. I pray that you would accomplish your will in and through us. Thank you for the reminder of your birth and how special that truly is. Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you so much for each one. We love you and we're grateful for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen.